0: Chapter Thirty-One of El Dorado by Baroness Orczy, read for by Karen Savage in September 2007. Chapter Thirty-One, An Interlude. It was close on midnight now, and still they sat opposite one another, he the friend and she the wife, talking over that brief half hour that had meant an eternity to her. Marguerite had tried to tell Sir Andrew everything, bitter as it was to put into actual words the pathos and misery which she had witnessed. Yet she would hide nothing from the devoted comrade whom she knew Percy would trust absolutely. To him she repeated every word that Percy had uttered, described every inflection of his voice, those enigmatical phrases which she had not understood, and together they cheated one another into the belief that hope lingered somewhere hidden in those words. "'I am not going to despair, Lady Blakeney,' said Sir Andrew firmly. "'And, moreover, we are not going to disobey.' I would stake my life that even now Blakeney has some scheme in his mind, which is embodied in the various letters which he has given you, and which, heaven help us in that case, we might thwart by disobedience. To-morrow in the late afternoon I will escort you to the Rue de Charon. It is a house that we all know well, and which Armand, of course, knows too. I had already inquired there two days ago, to ascertain whether by chance Saint-Just was not in hiding there, but Lucas, the landlord, an old clothes-dealer, knew nothing about him. Marguerite told him about her swift vision of Armand in the dark corridor of the House of Justice. "'Can you understand it, Sir Andrew?' she asked, fixing her deep, luminous eyes inquiringly upon him. "'No, I cannot,' he said, after an almost imperceptible moment of hesitancy. "'But we shall see him to-morrow. I have no doubt that Mademoiselle Lange will know where to find him. And now that we know where she is, all our anxiety about him, at any rate, should soon be at an end.' He rose and made some allusion to the lateness of the hour. Somehow it seemed to her that her devoted friend was trying to hide his innermost thoughts from her. She watched him with an anxious, intent gaze. "'Can you understand it at all, Sir Andrew?' she reiterated, with a pathetic note of appeal. "'No, no,' he said firmly. "'On my soul, Lady Blakeney, I know no more of Armand than you do yourself. But I am sure that Percy is right. The boy frets because remorse must have assailed him by now. Had he but obeyed implicitly that day, as we all did—' But he could not frame the whole terrible proposition in words. Bitterly as he himself felt on the subject of Armand, he would not add yet another burden to this devoted woman's heavy load of misery. "'It was fate, Lady Blakeney,' he said after a while. "'Fate, a damnable fate, which did it all. Great God! To think of Blakeney in the hands of those brutes seems so horrible that at times I feel as if the whole thing were a nightmare, and that the next moment we shall both wake hearing his merry voice echoing through this room.' He tried to cheer her with words of hope that he knew were but chimeras. A heavy weight of despondency lay on his heart. The letter from his chief was hidden against his breast. He would study it anon in the privacy of his own apartment, so as to commit every word to memory that related to the measures for the ultimate safety of the child king. After that, it would have to be destroyed, lest it fall into inimical hands. Soon he bade Marguerite good-night. She was tired out, body and soul, and he, her faithful friend, vaguely wondered how long she would be able to withstand the strain of so much sorrow, such unspeakable misery. When at last she was alone, Marguerite made brave efforts to compose her nerves so as to obtain a certain modicum of sleep this night. But strive how she might, sleep would not come! How could it, when before her wearied brain there rose constantly that awful vision of Percy in the long, narrow cell, with weary head bent over his arm, and those fiends shouting persistently in his ear, "'Wake up, citizen! Tell us, where is Capet?' The fear obsessed her that his mind might give way for the mental agony of such intense weariness must be well-nigh impossible to bear. In the dark, as she sat hour after hour at the open window, looking out in the direction where, through the veil of snow, the grey walls of the Châtelet prison towered silent and grim, she seemed to see his pale, drawn face with almost appalling reality. She could see every line of it, and could study it with the intensity born of a terrible fear. How long would the ghostly glimmer of merriment still linger in the eyes? When would the hoarse, mirthless laugh rise to the lips, that awful laugh that proclaims madness? Oh! she could have screamed now with the awfulness of this haunting terror! Ghouls seemed to be mocking her out of the darkness. Every flake of snow that fell silently on the window-sill became a grinning face that taunted and derided. Every cry in the silence of the night, every footstep on the quay below, turned to hideous jeers, hurled at her by tormenting fiends. She closed the window quickly, for she feared that she would go mad. For an hour after that she walked up and down the room, making violent efforts to control her nerves, to find a glimmer of that courage which she promised Percy that she would have. Chapter thirty one